My name is Clancy Immerslund, and I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> I'm really very glad to be here today. Glad to, I, I love Jekyll Island. I like coming here enjoy the people. People come and go, some of them, but I'm glad to be here. I've been coming here a long time. I'll tell you how long I've been coming here. When I first started coming here, they weren't working on this highway between here and Jacksonville. That's a lot of years ago. I was thinking about coming over there yesterday, early afternoon. Not one guy working on it, just all the lanes closed, not one worker anywhere, just, I don't know, when do they work on it? I don't know, but it's always nice to see. Uh, I really enjoyed this, uh, this weekend. I've seen some old friends, especially glad to see my old Knights of Humility, Bill and Dennis, and uh, Several people here I sponsor. A couple of them gave very good talks. Leo and, I mean, uh, Vince and Ed. I want to thank George, who I sponsor, and Leo, who made my visit here possible because my grandson had taken my cufflinks out of my bag and threw them away, I guess. And I found the only guy in Georgia with a pair of cufflinks. Thanks, Leo. He had them in his ears. Glad to see Jim and Lynn and Stevie and other folks and Bob, P. And it's really been a very pleasant uh, weekend. I I enjoyed John's talk very much Friday night. I think it's just been an outstanding weekend. We're going to hear an excellent speaker tomorrow, Miss Pat. And I think you'll enjoy the weekend all all in all. The uh, I have I'm a little down tonight. I got some kind of bad news late this afternoon. I'm a Norwegian, and Norwegians are traditionally not involved in politics. They just sit around saying, huh, huh. <laughs> and late this afternoon on the, on the TV, some, I didn't even know there were Islamic Norwegians, but there's some Norwegian, is, <laughs> some Norwegian Islamic terrorists have hijacked the Goodyear blimp and are all over New York bumping into buildings, buildings, you know, just, just kind of a, kind of a sad thought. It's a sadder when you can't say it right. <laughs> and Joe, good to see you, Joe. That's one thing wrong with being a smart aleck. You have to be right. If you're not right, it's just, just forget it. But I really, uh, we've had a variety of experiences uh, this weekend, hearing John talk about uh, how he came to AA and was able to stay here. And, and Vince, after one night or so, uh, came back and stayed here. And Ed stayed here the first time he went here. Then on the other hand, there are people who come here and can't stay here, and I was one of those. I, uh, I had a terrible time, and I, I came as kind of a medium to high bottom drunk, and eventually became a medium bottom drunk, and eventually became a, a low bottom drunk. In all these years, I intermittently went to Alcoholics Anonymous. I guess when you want the aisle seat, you wait for it, don't you? <laughs> My kind of guy, I want what I want, and I want that aisle seat. Everybody move, goddammit. 
And on a, on a cold, rainy morning, several people, Leo, or Vince was talking about cold, rainy morning, and John was talking about rain. And on a cold, rainy morning, uh, I found myself in a situation that a person of my background and intelligence and cannot be in. Two big guys are throwing me out of a skid row mission in Los Angeles. And, uh, Stay out of here, you damn troublemaker. And I tried to explain to him, I'm not a troublemaker. Three years ago, I was on the faculty of the University of Texas. Ads that I helped write, the L.C. Elmer ads for the Borden Company, were running that very week in life and time and started even post New Yorker. I've had my picture in the New York Times for one of my achievements. How many people do you know have had their picture in the New York Times? But it's hard to explain these things in midair. <laughs> <laughs> And I stood outside of that damn old mission on a cold, rainy morning, and I just had a terrible feeling. I didn't know what it was. I know what it is now because I've thought about it and listened to other people who've had it. I'm sure some of the people in this room have had it. The feeling of you got yourself in a position where there's no friendly direction. There's no place to go back to. There's no place to withdraw to. You can't, uh, there's no direction. If I follow it long enough, there's going to be somebody glad to see me and smiling. And I just had a terrible, sick emptiness and cold and wet and if some old guy would have come up to me that morning and said, you know, Slim, you're dying. You're down to 120-some pounds. You've lost your wife and children. You'll never see them again. You've lost your career. Once upon a time, they called you a boy genius. Now you can't even get a job washing dishes. You've lost uh, all your clothes. You lost them in the car you lost that you were driving for somebody else. When you lost the car in Phoenix when you got drunk going west. And uh, I remember at Phoenix because I'd, I was drunk and lost this car. I couldn't find it. I got in a beef on a streetcar with a guy who turned out to be a cop. And he threw me in jail overnight to cool me off. And uh, in the middle of the night, I, was, I got so sick. It was so hot, 130 or something like that. And I was so sick. And I vomited. And it turned out it wasn't a toilet at all. It was somebody's bunk. <laughs> but he, nobody was in it. I mean, it, was, it looked like a toilet. <laughs> and I, it made me feel better, so I lay down next to it and got put my head on the cool floor, tiled, went to sleep. And the guy came back whose bunk it was, and he was upset. He said, you damn drunken bastard! And kicked my front teeth out. I know that he was intending to kick my teeth out. He was intending to kick, but he... And uh, I remember that vaguely. I remember thinking, I was one of the few mornings I was ever glad I'd spent thousands of dollars in psychoanalysis. I was almost instantly able to identify his problem. <laughs> I remember thinking, this son of a bitch is overreacting. <laughs> but I didn't want to say anything and make trouble. And the next morning, he let me out in the streets of Phoenix, where it was going to be 130 again, and uh, sick and torn and vomit on me in a torn suit. and. Uh, Fortunately, I'd been going to AA off and on for about 10 years by this time, so I, uh, I went over to the AA club. And every time I went to AA, when I was, I'd just go to AA, take the heat off after a while, and I'd leave and I'd find some newcomer, I'd give him five or 10 bucks. Too bad you girls didn't see me then. You could have gotten five or 10 bucks. <laughs> or 20 if. And I thought, by the time I make a withdrawal, Jesus, I'm dying. And I went over to this club, the Aaron Club, looked for that, found it was in the phone book, and went over there, and sick and dirty and filthy and vomit and breath or knock over a bull. And uh, some woman said, are you sick, young man? I said, yes, I am, ma'am. And I convinced her, I said, I'm a newcomer, and I, I, I got a place to taste the stamp in a 12-step house, and I 
but I need $20. I don't have $20. I'm afraid I'm going to die. He said, well, gave me $20. I took that and raced for the bus depot. Got a bus to Los Angeles where I didn't know anybody. And I got off the bus. I only knew one person in Los Angeles, a guy named Ted Quillard. He was a big radio star in KFWB. And I'd helped give him his start years before. And I'm not to see him. I'm dead. I had a, I had a terrible accident. Uh, I uh, got in a car accident. And I, I'm waiting for a check to come. Could you help me out just a little bit? Oh, my God, certainly. Give me just $100, I would call. And that's, I said, thanks, Ted. And, and I had a wonderful life in those days. I should start off by saying my name is Klein Simmons. I'm an alcoholic, and uh, my sobriety date is October 31st, 1958. My home group was the Pacific Group in Los Angeles. But in 19, the 1950s, $100 was big dough. And I lived it up pretty good. I remember stopping one AA club one night and giving them a short address on their shortcomings. And, <laughs> and uh, out the beach at something called the Tender Loving Care Club and got thrown out of there. That later became Synanon. And I had a good time, and I ran out of dough, of course. I had to go back. I called up Tad. I said, Tad, my check hasn't come yet. I need a little help. He said, I called Dallas Clancy. You haven't had a check. You haven't had a car. I said, you're a bum. You got fired Tracy Lock. You're a bum. I don't want you coming by KFW again. But yeah, I said, Jesus, said, I'm broke. He said, well, come to the alley, which is the front of it was on Hollywood Boulevard, and there's an alley behind. Just come to the alley in the back, and come tonight. It was 7 o'clock. I'm on the nights this week, and it's just coming up. So I'm just in the back of the alley, and there's raining. And come out of the fire escape. He said, stay away from here. Now, just stay away from here. Now, take this and get the, get the hell out of here. And he threw a $5 bill and fluttered down to a mud puddle, and I went out and got that $5 bill. Boy, that made me feel. I always thought that was, about, that was as close to my bottom as I'll ever get, crawling out in a mud puddle to get a $5 bill. And a couple of days later, I was thrown out of a Skid Row mission. And I, this guy said to me, you know, you've lost your, you've lost all your clothes. If you'd have said to me, you've lost your front teeth, you can't get a job, your mouth is bleeding, you're sickening, you're sickening, you've got nothing going for you. You're an only child and your mother up in Wisconsin has, uh, is not allowed to accept phone calls from you anymore because your stepfather's so tired of you watching her and working on your emotions so she'll go to her tiny little bank account and take a few more dollars out and send it to you. He would rather have her think you are dead than the way you are. Now, you've been going to AA off and on for 10 years almost, and you sit in these meetings and you smirk and you think, how long do I have to stay here to get the heat off this time? And you laugh at these people and ridicule them, make jokes about them. And now you're dying on the street. Why don't you go back to AA one more time and at least admit you're an alcoholic and do something about it before you die? And if some guy had said that to me, and if I were in a mood to be honest, which I may or may not have been, but I'd have to say, pal, you don't understand. I'm not really an alcoholic. <laughs> and if he had said, well, prove you're not an alcoholic, I wouldn't be able to do that. I wouldn't have had the objectivity to delineate the differences. So what I had to do what people like me do when they're frightened and scared and cornered. And people like me take refuge behind bluster. And you say things like, oh, get out of my face, you son of a bitch. Leave me alone before I crack you one. Get the hell out of here. So I'd have to say that because I didn't want them to know I was scared. But I, I didn't know the reason. I know the reason now. I know the reason now. I know it very well. I mean, I knew I wasn't an alcoholic. I, I knew there was something wrong with me. I've known it since I was a little boy. There's something missing in me, and I don't know what the hell it is. 
because nobody ever tells me, but they act as though there's, they can see there's something wrong with me. But nobody, what's wrong? They, they don't want to tell me, I guess. But it makes me unable to fit in well with people. And I don't feel comfortable. And I feel secretly afraid a lot of times. I feel inadequate sometimes. I feel below people. Other times when I work hard, I feel above them. But I'm above them or below them, never like them. Always, usually below them and resentful. I don't, I'm able to sustain relationships apparently. I can't, I don't even feel natural with my own children sometimes. I, I, I try to think, what would a father do in this situation? I love them, I don't know what the hell to do. I've lost jobs with this sometimes because I'm too smart alecky sometimes I don't talk. And I, I don't know what it is. I spent my life disguising this feeling and I, sometimes the disguise slips apparently because it all goes again. And I, uh, the only thing that ever saved me is when I was 15 years old and I was a nervous and restless kid. You know, that's kind of funny. I was raised in a very, very strict religion, like many of the people that I spoke this weekend in the Norwegian Lutheran Church, which is a very strict church. You hear about Southern Baptists and being a strict church. Our dropouts become Southern Baptist ministers. <laughs> It's a very strict church, and as has been said, like Vince described the 20 questions, it's, we're that way with the 10, with the 12 step, or the 10 commandments, you know. If you break one, you're, there's a question. If you break two, you're probably gone, but three or four, you might as well just forget it. You might as well break the rest and have a good time, because you aren't going to go anywhere. <laughs> and uh, I was, I never was a sinner much, but I just seemed to need more fun than other Lutherans. I, I could sing little songs in Norwegian, and I, could, I was catechized and confirmed, and, but just something, something about me. And when I was about 12 years, I was, I was a good reader, and I was good, pretty good in school, so I was shoved ahead in school about a year and a half, went up from the th beginning of the third grade to the end of the fourth grade, which in a sense altered my perception because I'd gone from being a leader of a class to being the kid from the third grade always, from then on, I always had to show off and prove I was something, whether people wanted me to or not. And when I was about 11 or 12, I was a straight-A student, doing well, a little bit of a discipline problem, but my parents got divorced. Now, it's impossible to think about it in this day and age, but as I recall it, I had never seen or heard of a divorce at the age of 12, because nobody ever got divorced in our family, our church, or anywhere. And here were my parents getting a divorce, and I didn't know what the hell to make of that. It just seemed like a rocket hit the earth. But the, the thing that came out of it was that I instinctively, without even having any background in anything except my own insufficiency, I immediately began outsmarting both of them. I began playing them against each other to avoid discipline. And I, when my mother's mean to me, I'd run to my father. When my father's mean to me, I'd run to my mother. When I both mean to me, I'd go to my grandmother. And I could get a lot of sympathy because people didn't. My dad was a teacher in the school system. My teachers would give me hell. they say, but. It's your dad and mother, that's, that's the fault, isn't it? That's right, that's right, you know. And I outsmarted them continually. By the time I was 15, I'd outsmarted them tremendously. But I was flunking out of school. I had no, nothing in my life, no structure, no nothing. Just out, always being too smart. And the only thing that saved me, the war started. Second World War. And I, relatively short time, I, I was having a difficult time and I, I felt bad and I thought maybe if I could go kill Japs or something, saw movies. And I told my mother I wanted to go to Superior to visit my aunt. She packed my little bag and gave me bus fare. And 
I got a guy to give me a ride to Minneapolis. He was going to Minneapolis, and I decided to hitchhike to San Francisco and fight in World War II. And I, I stood outside of Minneapolis. I had no idea. I was this tall and absolutely dumb and a face full of pimples and just <laughs> stupid. Never hadn't been to Milwaukee. You know, just dumb. Yeah. And the car stops. Where are you going, kid? I said, San Francisco? He said, so am I. Hop in. <laughs> okay, we're in San Francisco. And I, I've often, I'd like to, I wish that no one would ever find that guy. Maybe he might be in a meeting somewhere. I don't think so, though. But he must have been a saint. Because he was in the Navy going back to a ship. And he just picked me up for some, I don't know why. Just listened to my prattle for 1,500 miles. <laughs> he'd buy my meals. We'd stop at that. There were no motels there. We'd get me in a trailer court. Get me a bed. Get me up in the morning. Uh, and buy me more meals. And I didn't think anything about it. I thought, I never hitchhiked. I thought, that's what happens when you hitchhike. You <laughs> And I told him I wanted to be in the Marine Corps and go over there and kill Japs like John Wayne. He said, well, kid, I uh, feel small, but you might get the Merchant Marine because they're crying for seamen. They're, all the good guys got in the Navy. They just got the scum of the world left, and you'd fit right in there, kid. <laughs> I don't know if he said that. I just added that to hurt myself. But uh, so he said, go in there, go to the Coast Guard office. Tell them you're 16. Don't tell them you're 15. Tell me you want to be a seaman. And he dropped me off the Coast Guard office and drove away and never saw him again. Didn't know his name to this day. Just amazing. None of the Coast Guard officers, I want to be in the merchant marine. Said, Here's an application, kid. And I filled it out and put down 16. He said, well, you're only 16, kid. You have to have your parents' permission. So I took it around the block, got my parents' permission. <laughs> and they were really desperate. And they issued me seaman's papers right there. I mean, some permanent ones came later, but temporary ones. Another guy and I went down to the National Maritime Union, took me down there, and they had me sign a waiver for my dues. Didn't know what a waiver was, or I didn't know what a dues were. I don't care. Was, they took another guy and I, they drove us over to the Embarcadero and put us on this big ship. And uh, two hours later, we were on our way to the South Pacific. And it really was fun for about 45 minutes. <laughs> I said, that's, that's Treasure Island. That's for the World's Fair one. That's... Alcatraz. Mm -hmm. That's the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh. But that's the end of it. That's, you know. <laughs> and I think I had an intuitive feeling, although I wouldn't have recognized it, but I think I had an intuitive feeling that I'd made the first in an endless series of career mistakes. <laughs> Some guy said, get to your fossil. I didn't know what a forecastle was, but it sounded ominous. That's where the crew sleeps on a ship. And I was in, I went in this room I was supposed to be in with three of the worst type of people that any small, skinny, Norwegian, Lutheran, maybe troubled kid, but certainly not a sinner, could be with. And these people are called men. What the hell are you supposed to be? I could see there was a little tension in there, so I told him a joke or two that I'd heard in study hall. And <laughs> I just shut up and get your bunk. I got my bunk. I still remember that. Just, the ship was going funny. And it was hot in there. And I didn't, these men were terrible. And I just, I wanted my mother. I just didn't want to say anything. <laughs> and these guys start talking. And I'd never heard talk like that. These guys were big time sinners. <laughs> They had been in San Francisco doing sex for three days, apparently. <laughs> and I just couldn't believe my ears. I, th I thought, I said, of course. They've all got black hair. 
Those must be the Catholics I've heard about. <laughs> I don't want to give the wrong impression. Even at the age of 15 in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I'd had sex. But I'd been apprehensive, and I'd been afraid, and I'd been alone. And, uh, these guys were doing it with people. But a couple of days, I got, I got, I found a role on that ship. I became the ship fool. You know, <laughs> hey kid, go out the engine room. Tell them we need left-handed wrench. <laughs> hey kid, go up on the bridge. Tell the captain we need some elbow grease. <laughs> and these guys would sit around at the end of the shift every afternoon, and they all had whiskey. We weren't supposed to be on the ship, but they all had it. <laughs> And I said, God, it's just terrible. I just laid in my bunk and just, ooh. And one day, the guy turned to me and said, how about you, Junior? You think you're man enough for a little snort? And he shoved that bottle in my lips, and I drew the line there. I may be dumb, but I'm not a sinner. And I was just prepared to demolish you. I had it working out in my head. I was going to say, you big dummy. You get that whiskey out of my face. I don't happen to be one of your Catholics. I'm a Norwegian Lutheran. We don't drink whiskey. I mean, if I was, I promised my mother and grandmother I don't drink whiskey. And I don't care what you do to me. Make a fool of me, but don't shove that whiskey around me ever. Now, just go to tell him that. And he said, well, do you think you're man enough? And I heard a voice say, God damn right. <laughs> Turns out I'm a little weak under pressure, too. So I had my first drink out of the first bottle of whiskey I was ever close to, and it burned my mouth and my throat and my stomach and my throat and my mouth. His shirt finally just <laughs> get the bottle away from the son of a bitch. <laughs> to this day, I don't know any emotion that's worse than public humiliation. Public, where they make a fool out of you, you can't do anything about it. I, I can see why people would shoot people and they get angry or hit them. I was too small to do anything. I thought later, the one thing I might have done, I didn't think of it, uh, they'd have thrown me overboard, but it sure would have been cute. <laughs> Lean over, you. Yeah. Take that. <laughs> Just give them one in the old eye. But all the way across the Central Pacific, where nobody was looking, I'd sink that guy's sea bag, one of those sea bags, once every day, when nobody's around, take a drink of that whiskey and I'd throw it up and I'd have to wipe it up. But I, was I was so desperate for those guys to think I was a man, which nothing would have made them think I was a man. Actually, I obviously wouldn't, but I didn't know that. And I'd drink and throw up, it was just terrible. We were coming into Pearl Harbor, finally. And uh, the day before my 16th birthday, I saw the movie Pearl Harbor recently. I don't know about the love story in there, all that stuff, but I'll tell you, they recreated the appearance of it perfectly. That's the way it looked. And I was down there taking a drink of this crap and stayed down. And then I, I couldn't hardly breathe. It's just so terrible. <gasps> then all of a sudden, something strange happened. I found myself feeling significantly better. Jeez, <laughs> that feels good. I didn't think about it, because when you're teens, is when you grow up, it's when you learn things. You know, you just learn, discover things. I've, on that ship, nobody, everybody smoked. Nobody in my family smoked. They all smoked. So I smoked and puked and smoked and puked. Until <laughs> finally I smoked and didn't puke. And I, didn't, I smoked two and a half or three packs a day every day for the next 40 some years. I uh, learned to curse on that ship. Not very well, but I got the melody later. <laughs> I learned to lust effectively. 
It never worked, but I overheard techniques that, I guess they only work for Catholics. It didn't work for Lutherans. <laughs> you don't want to go to bed, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no big deal. I didn't get, I become a terrible alcoholic. The next night we were in Honolulu, they got me four bottles of beer and I got drunk and they laughed and I laughed and I had fun and no big deal. Once in a while they'd give me a drink of whiskey again and I'd, I feel good and that's all. Later on, I got another ship going to the Aleutians. Some of you young folks don't remember, early in the Second World War, the Japanese invaded the Aleutians the same weekend of the Battle of Midway. So we had to get it back from them. And then when I got a little older, I went in the Navy, and uh, then the Naval, uh, at the end of the war, I was in a Naval hospital up in Pleasanton, California. They passed around some tests. I wasn't good on tests. And they gave me, I did very well. They gave me a high school diploma, because I'm still a beginning junior in high school. I went back to Wisconsin after the war and went to college, first class of veterans after World War II. Probably very few people in this room remember that because it was a 1946, but it was a historic moment in American history because all of a sudden millions of guys all got out of the service at once. They all had the GI Bill and a lot of them just for something to do went to college. They didn't want to go to college, just something to do. And so you'd sit in freshman English class and it'd be some grizzled old ex-sergeant about 40 years old sitting in the front row. Yeah. Next to some little honey just out of Plum Run High School. Yeah. Were you were you in the war? <laughs> yeah, do you put out? <laughs> uh, no. Very rude question, but a lot of them did. <laughs> Don't blame me, I'm just reporting, I'm not judging them. And I met a girl in college who had coal black hair, black flashing eyes, something you never see in the Lutheran church, I'll tell you. And I thought, God, she's so mysterious. Maybe she's just a, <gasps> and she won my heart. And then after she won my heart, she dropped the big bomb, you know. I'm a Catholic. <laughs> and I, you know, I could never take her home. I would not do to her. But I tried, I, I fought against it, but she had me in her clutches. And, and we got married, and uh, my grandmother went through depression for about two years. She'd, she'd see me and cry. He said, all right, Sonny. <laughs> and I went out in the world. I became a sports writer, a newspaper sports writer, which to this, I'd won some trophies for the college. I became a newspaper sports writer, which to this day is my favorite job I ever had, covering sports and uh, football and baseball. But then my life took a terrible change because my wife began manifesting the habit patterns of Catholics which I didn't know about, and no Protestant ever knew about, I guess. But if you're a Protestant boy and you're in love with a Catholic girl, let me tell you something, just so you can be prepared. If she's a nice girl, you're about to have a big family, <laughs> whether you plan on it or not. And I started my next career, which was being a national distributor of small Catholics. Just, oh. <laughs> I remember saying to her, can't we use birth control? And she said, no. But I've said this a lot of times, it's still true though. I don't know what I'd have done if she had said yes. It's hard for young people today to realize this. But in those days, nobody ever talked about those things. They were, you know. At the age, well, when I graduated from college, I'd been in the Navy, been in the war, been all over. And I, I, I think I maybe had heard the word condom once in my life. And I think that was in a Navy training film where they showed this voluptuous girl and explained what would happen if you didn't use a condom. And when I saw her, I didn't even care what happened to me if I could just get her. 
Um, what you would see in those days, some kind of rapscallion kids would say things like, I got a rubber. <laughs> <laughs> and even they wouldn't go in and buy them because they'd be ashamed. You'd have to hire somebody depraved. <laughs> and even they'd be ashamed. They'd go in and say things like, give me a pack of cigarettes and some rubbers. <laughs> I just think how the change today, 50 some years later, at least the Rite Aid drugstore by my house down on Lincoln and Lake, these kids looking like about 15 come in and say, Hey, give me a package of condoms <laughs> and some cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, So I had to get better jobs. I got in advertising and public relations, worked around the country. I was kind of an explosive type of, that whole World War II veteran thing, you know, well, I'm a veteran of World War II, give you a little extra preference. And I had got some good jobs and lost them, good jobs and lost them. But I drank and did all these things all these years. And, and uh, the only problem is I always had a little trouble drinking. I seemed to drink a little too much sometimes. I act bizarrely, or as I prefer to believe, I have many times been thoughtlessly overserved. <laughs> and so I went to my first AA meeting in the early 1949. I didn't go to get sober. Some guy said, you know, a lot of town drunks are cutting down. Why don't you go there and go to an AA? Sure. And the guys talked about it in their talks this weekend. Uh, your first meeting when you're young. And I went to a meeting guys in their 30s and 40s and burned out old boobs and gray hairs. And, and I don't know what there's. It seemed to me, here's what I thought they were saying. Well... When I drink, my life is just terrible. Then I get sober, and everything is just fine. I love it, and my family's happy. Then I get drunk again, and it all goes to hell. And then I get sober again, and things are really good. My job goes good, my family and I are all happy. Then I get drunk again, it just goes to hell. And then I, you just what's wrong with you? Why do you get drunk, you know? And speakers say things like, I stayed drunk around the clock 20 years. One day I walked through that door. They told me to put the plug in the jug, and I did. And I've just never been so goddamn happy. <laughs> I went for a while, but I'm not like that. Because, and I went to, next time I went to work for Fairbanks Morrison Advertising Department. I got a little trouble in that city, Beloit, I went to AA take the heat off. And I did that a few times. And the great thing about it, you know, you could come home in those days, AA was not very well known. It was kind of a mystical thing almost. And you'd go to a, come home from, okay, well, Charlotte, I've decided to go back to AA. Good. It'd be wonderful. It'll help you. I know it helps people, doesn't it? <laughs> what do they want you to do, honey? They want me to taper off. <laughs> And there wasn't any Al-Anon then to screw it up for everybody. <laughs> Ever since the birth of Al-Anon, there's never been a moment's rest for anybody, you know. <laughs> no, we don't have the same stuff you do. You, you're not supposed to drink it all. We don't have, you're supposed to have abstinence. <laughs> I release you, son of a bitch. Yeah. 
and ups and downs, and I had jobs. And finally, I, I was up. I always got another job. Had pretty, I could write pretty well. And, but I went down, and in, after years of doing this, I went down to Dallas one day and never came back up. And I went from something, I'll tell you. Of course, they had notified my wife they were firing her. My wife always got along with everybody. Her name was Poor Charlotte. <laughs> Should you contact Poor Charlotte? Yeah. And she knew I was getting fired before I did. And she had made some arrangements to sell the furniture and leave with the children. And I came home from a little two-day drunk after being fired, and she was gone, and my clothes were in a pile on the floor, and they took my car back, and they evicted from my home. And I went from being something, Tracy Locke, the largest advertising agency in the South, to being on the street. And I had to get out of that state because I was kind of a probation from the state hospital at that time. So I got a drive-away car to Los Angeles, got as far as Phoenix, and got my teeth kicked out. And all, just all of a sudden, I went from something to nothing. And I stood in that street corner, and the guys tried to tell me I'm an alcoholic. I didn't know how to explain to them. I'm not really an alcoholic. People think I am. But you don't seem to understand this. That's not me. I, I'd been around A for a lot of years, but I, knew, I didn't learn how to stay sober. I learned what an alcoholic was, and I wasn't that. Now, if you're these new people tonight, maybe other people wonder, well, what's an alcoholic? Everybody knows what an alcoholic is. There are people who drink too much, they get in trouble, and they come to AA and they straighten up their act and they live better after all. If you go to a speaker meeting once a week, you will hear in a year, 52 people get up and tell all different stories, all different backgrounds. You've heard all wildly different stories this weekend. But the one thing that is present in every AA talk was delivered by a sober alcoholic. It may, it may get lost in the persiflage, but it's there. I used to drink and my life was very painful. I came to AA and got sober and now I'm feeling better. Everything else is just dross. And that's the one reason I could, I never could put my finger on it then, but I knew why. Now, I could talk about drinking. I like to go to and talk about drinking, sit around discussion meetings and talk about drinking. Because I can talk about drinking. I've been, I've been in, drank a lot. I've been in jail a few times. I've been in hospitals. I've been in veterans hospitals. I've lost a lot. I know how to drink. I get, I've been to AA a number of times. I could talk about AA in New York and Chicago and San Francisco and, and uh, Dallas and uh, Milwaukee and Minneapolis and El Paso regional differences in AA perhaps. But the one thing I could never overcome is this. Unlike alcoholics, when I get sober and clean up my act, that is when my life gets painful. It doesn't get better. It does for a little while. But what happens to me, I wouldn't have known enough to describe it then, but in retrospect, what I felt. Sooner or later, somebody sneaks into my bedroom in the middle of the night and puts an invisible spring in my gut. And the next morning, they start tightening it. And then starts coming the restlessness. And the uh, impatience with people treating me like a child. And the knowledge that people don't seem to understand that I have feelings, that don't, nobody understands the way I'm doing. I'm trying to carry you all here for Christ's sake, and you never let up. And uh, I'm just getting tired of this. And I've known for many, many years, the only thing that cuts, I mean, I've spent thousands of dollars in analysis to get through that, and I've done a lot of things. I've read books, I've done a lot of things. But the only thing that cuts that feeling quick is two or three drinks. That's all. And now they say I can't drink. But eventually, I always drink. And I don't, but I don't know how to explain to them. I don't drink because I'm a drinker. You don't understand. 
I drink because I'm a feeler. I drink because that's, that's the only thing that makes me feel good. I feel like a man. I feel like something. I feel the way men look when I drink. And sometimes I drink too much and then, oh, you got a drinking problem. You ought to go to AA. And you have to say, gee, thanks for the advice. But inside of your voice wants to shriek, but you don't understand. Doesn't anybody understand? I went to my psychiatrist. He gave me, I spent thousands of dollars there to talk about these emotions of mine. They were eating me up. And, and he really helped me. He showed me how, where they came from. That I'd, I discovered I'd been hurt as a child. Didn't even know that. <laughs> but hurt by the depression. Didn't know there'd been a depression. I'd been repressed by the Norwegian Lutheran Church. How would you like to find out that your own church has repressed you? If I knew then, what I know now, I would have formed adult children of Norwegian Lutherans. <laughs> we could have hired a couple co-dependents and sat around and been pissed off every week. <laughs> I discovered a lot of things. I really liked, I used to come out of those psychiatric sessions and think, no wonder I drink, but I'm just raw inside. I'm, no wonder I feel raw. It took me almost a year to realize that I knew exactly what caused these feelings, but I still had them. I mean, what says that's annoying wife? You still got them. I thought the only re possible reason for all this knowledge is maybe late at night in a bar somewhere, some big mope comes over and says, I'm going to listen to you moth off all night. What the hell's wrong with you? And you can tell him. <laughs> I was repressed as a child by the Norwegian. <laughs> I did a lot of things, but I knew one thing. I used to wish I were an alcoholic. If I could only be like these guys, stop drinking and feel better. But nobody seems to understand. And I stood in that street corner, nobody came over and talked to me. I just stood in the rain, but I knew I'd have to go out of the rain because so I was dying. And I thought, where was this club I was in? Some, some funny corner named Wilshire and Fairfax, wherever the hell that is. And I asked for where that was. The guy said, well, Wilshire doesn't come all the way down here. You have to go up this hill to Hill Street, go over to Wilshire, then go west until you find it. And I walked, and I walked, and walked, and walked to the ranges. I counted later in my car a few years later, 72 long blocks. That's a long way to walk when you're sick and desperate in the rain and just mouth bleeding. And a woman in New York asked me one time, how could you possibly walk that far when you were so sick and desperate? And most of us know the answer to that. That is the only time you can. You couldn't do it. If you had anything else to do, you'd do it. I got to that club, and they remembered me from being in there, raising hell with them, and they were glad to see me. And, and I hung around the club, and that night there was a meeting, and I still raining, and I ate about four pounds of cake. That's all I could eat, and they had a meeting about gratitude, and I almost puked it back up again. And after the meeting, I had no place to go, and I, I thought, I have no place to stay, and I'm a newcomer. Because you're lucky out in the parking lot, a guy named Joe Quinn left a 49 Merck last summer. You can sleep in that. I said, oh, Jesus. And I slept in that. Next morning I got up, came in the club, and they were having a spiritual meeting. It was Sunday morning. I ate cake, and they talked about Jesus or God or somebody who was after me I didn't want to hear about. <laughs> and I lurked around the club that day, and that night there was another meeting, and the next night I slept in an abandoned car again, and the next morning I got up, and this went on for days. It just kept raining. And I remember thinking, maybe I'm dead. <laughs> maybe this is hell. Maybe my grandmother was right. Maybe hell isn't hot and fire. It's just cold and rainy and sick and bleeding every day while people talk to you about AA. Jesus. <laughs> and I had no idea then or thereafter that would be my sobriety date. Because of all the times I ever got sober, that was the least time I ever wanted to stay sober. I had no, didn't want to, didn't stay sober. I didn't, 
I didn't stay sober for any reason. It just I've often thought about that and looked back on that and tried to think about that. Because that is such a turning spot. When you don't want to stay sober, how do you stay sober? I mean, I had wanted to stay sober. When I was drunk once and over in jail overnight, my son died in another city. And I felt so bad about that that I put my hand in his casket and I said, John Immerslin, I will never do this to your sisters again. I had a bunch of little girls and one little boy and he died. And I almost went crazy. And uh, we buried him. And, and I went back to where I was working in Texas. And I, felt, I felt sad about my son's death, but it was almost as though an epiphany because he had died for a cause. It was like Easter. I, it's, it's, he's, he's dead, but it's going to be a glorious life for my daughters and wife. And I felt so good that, that till one night somebody snuck into my bedroom and put a spring in my gut. And the next morning it started. And now I was feeling, starting to feel bad again. And the restlessness and resentments. And now I'm not only combined with the loss of my little boy, my one little boy, he's dead and I have to put up with this crap. And I didn't like the job anymore. I didn't like the city anymore. I didn't like anything. I needed two or three drinks. God, just get through that. But when you've had your hand on your son's casket and promise you can't drink then. So one day it was just... My wife took the, her little girls to mass, and I pulled the car in the garage, hooked up a hose in the exhaust pipe, and went to sleep and died. I just couldn't stand it. And just a neighbor sitting at his kitchen table next door, drinking a coffee, and watched me go in there. Notice I didn't come out and heard the motor running and ambled over, found me dead in the car, and put me out, beat my chest, breathed my mouth, rushed me to the hospital, determined I was significantly mentally ill schizophrenic with manic depressive with, with paranoid tendencies and they committed me to the state insane asylum for an indefinite period because that's how i get when i stay sober too long uh, you can't call that an alcohol problem that's something else now why would i stay sober this time and i look back I, the best answer i gave i could ever devise in one sentence or less was that this time was the first time i i, I was so weak and so I was so frightened and lost that I inadvertently took some actions that I thought were demeaning and hideous. I'm not talking about steps or meaningful things. I'm talking about I'd sit in that damn club at these meetings. I, it kept raining. I had to stay there. And uh, for example, in those days, there were no, these, these cups had not been invented yet. So everybody drank out of porcelain cups. At the end of the meeting, somebody had to wash the porcelain cups. And the old timers got sick of washing them. They're always looking for some stooge to do it. Okay. You there, boy, without the front teeth. You uh, want to wash dishes for us tonight? <laughs> if I had any strength left, I'd say, no. I don't want to wash dishes tonight or tomorrow night or any other night. Why didn't you lick them off with that long, ugly tongue of yours? <laughs> But I couldn't afford the risk of being thrown out of that club into the rain, so I <laughs> Another night, a guy said, we need some help mopping after the meeting. Can you help, kid? <laughs> Probably the worst one of all was a guy said, we need somebody to help set up the meeting tomorrow night. How about you, kid? You live right here on the property. <laughs> and I stayed sober, I guess, just, I thought I was in hell. And I lasted about two weeks. And as I, occasionally by this time, I was getting known as a club's lower companion. Guys would buy me a little sandwich or a donut once in a while and couldn't eat much. Guy gave me an apple once in a while. I, I'm still going to kill him, you know. Thanks for the apple, <laughs> son of a bitch. 
But the club, the club was full of fanatics. You know, fanatics. You, you hate the kind of fanatics. And if you stayed sober around there, they saw you two weeks. They'd say, "Time to get a sponsor. Better get a sponsor. Got a sponsor?" Because <laughs> I'd had sponsors over the years. Now, if, you, you girls, I'm going to tell you about sponsors. <laughs> they all try to be so. Oh, we want to help you. We want to be your sponsor. <laughs> But sooner or later, they all want to stick their nose in your business. <laughs> so I thought, how could I avoid this? And I used to see this actor coming out of the club, and he went to three meetings a week there. And I'd seen him in the movies. He was always giving people things, money, and helping them. He's just a character actor. He had a nice image of him. I'll get that man to be my sponsor. I'll get some front teeth. I'll get some clothes. I'll go back to New York. I, I look pretty clean now. I'll get cleaned up. And I'll get a job maybe in an agency, big agency. I've got a good resume and I'm sober. And I'll save some money. I'll get back to Los Angeles someday and I'll, perhaps I'll buy this club and I'll burn this goddamn thing down. <laughs> and I hope they're all in it. I never really understood that until years later I saw the movie Carrie and I thought, yeah, that's it. Burn them all up. Burn them. I said, Bob, would you be my sponsor? He said, sure, kid, but I want you to do what I say. Oh, sure, Bob. I want sobriety on an all-time basis. They like to hear that. As I've said a hundred thousand times, maybe, that guy should have won the Academy Award for every loving role he ever played because they were totally foreign to his basic nature. He turned out to be a right-wing fascist AA pig. Just, we're do this, do this. <laughs> I feel like Quasimodo. Look, Bob, I'm ringing the big bell. Look, Bob. <laughs> I thought many, many times, why would I take that crap from that guy? Because at that stage of my life, I didn't take crap from anybody, if I could possibly help it. I didn't help it. And I'm not just when I was down and up, but jobs before that. I wouldn't take. I've left jobs that people would trade their butt to get because somebody gave me too much crap. You want to give me that much crap? You get yourself another boy, pal, because I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to take that. And I don't know how many nights in bars where I mouth off a lot. People would say, you don't, I'm going to you mouth off a lot. You don't seem like you're very much to me. You don't think so, son of a bitch? Why don't you try me and see how I am? And I get knocked on my can a lot. <laughs> but they know I'm half tough and half crazy, which is a good reputation to have in a bar. We were talking earlier tonight at, at one of our meals, what to do in a bar fight. Let me tell you what to do, how to win a bar fight, if you're not really overpowering. You wait till the guy's just about, you can just size him about to hit you. Then you hit him, just sucker punch him, right in the face, boom, like that. Right there, because it seems that in the nose, it kind of blinds you. The... Then you're on him. And then, hope to God, somebody pulls you off. Because if they don't, you're a gone goose, I'll tell you. <laughs> but why would I take crap from this guy? I didn't take crap from anybody. And, you know, it wasn't a lot sober while. I heard somebody talk about that phenomenon, and I could see why I didn't take credit. You know why? It's a terrible thing to say, because most of my adult life, 
I always had this secret knowledge deep inside of me. I'm a weakling, and I detest weaklings. I hate weaklings. I hate myself most of all for being a weakling. Other men are men, and I got, I'm afraid, and I don't fit in. And if they like me, nah. you never show it, you tell you that. How you doing, Clancy? You don't say, I'm afraid. <laughs> how you doing? Fine, how you doing? <laughs> I hate that. And so you can never, ever, you can never, ever let even show the slightest bit that you're such a weak. And one of the bad things about that, too, is it makes you almost impossible to stay in AA. Because if you take advice from these people, that they're going to know you're a weakly. So you can't take, yeah, yeah, thanks a lot. I've heard that shit before. Come on. But inside, <laughs> now, why did I take that crap from that guy? I'll tell you why. Because he did, I found out later he didn't like me. He thought I was a smart aleck punk, and I was. I, I tell you. There's nothing in the world worse than a newcomer who's an absolute loser who's got a smart mouth. I mean, you just want to punch. I've often thought, if I, circa 1958, walked into my office today, I, about 10 minutes, I'd say, you're too smart for me, fool. Get out of here. I didn't want to do but, but he was a nice man. He'd talk to me a little bit, and he took me a couple times to hear him talk. And, and I think somewhere along the line, I heard him say, I must have heard it a thousand times in A, I suppose, but I never paid any attention to what they said in A, these old fools. What he's talking about, he's talking about why, talking about that a lot of times in his life he felt inadequate and weak and didn't quite fit in. And he discovered that alcohol made it better, and that's why he drank. And I, I'd never heard, I consciously never heard that before. I thought, my God, he's another weakling like me. And look how well he's doing, you know. He's a manly guy. And I, I developed a begrudging respect for him. And as a result of that, I began doing some of the things he told me. Not because I liked him, or I'm not because I liked AA, I didn't think his steps were crappy. But I wanted him to like me. That's the only reason. I wanted him to like me. And one of the greatest things you'll ever know about Alcoholics Anonymous, the actions here don't care why you take them. As long as you take them, you'll start to get a little better. I, we've heard over the weekend several times this phenomenon and the phenomenon of identification. And it cannot be stressed too much, I think. I want you to take a minute to talk about that because it gets lost sometimes. You know, we get sometimes in AA, now we hear in our groups, oh, it's all one big disease. Narcotics addiction, alcoholism, overeating, gambling. Do you know where that idea came from? That was started by a treatment center that only had one van. <laughs> And they, uh, the phenomenon that makes Alcoholics Anonymous viable is this. As someone was said, maybe it's maybe it's John talking about this is nothing new in AA, nothing new here. You can find all kinds of books. You can find books written in the 1930s that have much the same thrust as the book Alcoholics Anonymous. However, the thing that makes this viable is that up to a certain point. Everything is information. There isn't a person in this room who didn't have enough information about their shortcomings by the time they're 21 to stop drinking for the rest of their life. But it means nothing because it bounces off. Because the ultimate defense against that is, but you don't understand. You don't understand. I know you mean well. I could tell my minister or my mother or my dad or 
my teachers or my bosses, I know you mean well, but you don't understand. I'm not, I'm not a drinker, really. I'm, I'm a feeler. There's something wrong inside of me. I, I can't even discuss it. And to come to AA and somehow identify, and you know what that does? That allows you to unlock the door just a little bit and look out. And some of the stuff can get in. Because all the time, 12-stepping, everything else, all the 12-stepper can do is get them to try to unlock that door. Because the door unlocks from the inside. It does not lock. We can knock all we want about, oh, I've got that. Unless you can get the guy to open the door, nothing's going to happen. And identification is changes information to meaningful data. And it doesn't do it all at once. It's by fits and spurts, little by little. And it's such a long and arduous process sometimes. And especially people who've been slipping a while. Because your natural state of developed defenses against all of it. And this guy got me to take little crappy actions. And little by little, I, uh, I stayed sober. And eventually when I was uh, sober, I took little actions. I did things. And I could, he, he wasn't very kind to me, I, I felt it, because he didn't, I thought he understood me, he didn't quite, I'd, I'd say, Bob, I'm almost three and a half weeks sober now, I'm living in the back seat of an abandoned car, and I've got no teeth, I look terrible, i got old clothes, somebody gave me a green corduroy jacket that I still have. And I said, I, I can't live like this, I'm a sensitive, intelligent person, Bob, what can I do? He said, get a job. I said, get a job, for Christ's sake. Look how terrible I look. He said, get a terrible job. <laughs> I followed that direction to the hilt, I'll tell you. By the time I was a year sober, I was finally holding a job as a wrapping packages in the back of an advertising agency. The same kind of job I had when I was 14. This is the big rocket starting to start him now. When I was two years sober, I finally got a little job, finally, as a beginning writer in a medical corporation. Somebody put in some clout for me. Still didn't have any front teeth. But I learned to carry my lip like this. <laughs> they just thought I'd been burned in a fire. <laughs> and I went to work every day, and I worked every day because my sponsor insisted that he was just crazed about that. And I, over the next three years, I learned some of the greatest spiritual lessons of my life on that job and whining to my sponsor. Now, if you're new, you may wonder, well, the spiritual lessons, we don't know if they're prayer and meditation. That's right, they are. But here are some other ones you may not think about. Do what you said you would do. Be where you said you would be when you said you would be there. Do not take out your hostility on people who can't answer back. Children, waiters and waitresses, employees. On days you know you're having a bad day, watch that mouth because you can cut people's relationships with you just all apart and never know what happened. Just go. <laughs> if you see something that's broke, fix it. If you see something on the floor, pick it up. I still do that in the market. I think of my sponsor, I go down there and somebody's dropped a can or something. I think, God damn it, they ought to pick it up. But I know he's watching me from heaven, so I'll pick it up. <laughs> and a lot of other things. And little by little, I became director of advertising of that medical corporation. And I had front teeth then. When I was five years sober, I smiled. If any of you are new tonight and have missing teeth, let me give you some hope. Once you become spiritually perfect, they grow back.
when I was seven years sober, another night, another night got called, came into Hollywood, called Hollywood, who created the number one hard rock station in the world at that time, Boss Radio. Really was hot, and we all wore shiny suits and did well. And when I was 10 years sober, I was downtown doing public relations for oil companies. 15 years sober, I was a marketing director in Beverly Hills. When I was five years sober, the same wife and all those children heard the crinkle of green in my wallet all the way to Texas. <laughs> Leaped out of their post office box, <laughs> fled them to my side, attached themselves to me like a group of starving chiggers. <laughs> Nine months and ten seconds later, another Catholic hit the street. <laughs> I went into an emergency mode there and started reading up on the rhythm system and got a metronome. <clears throat> which really beats coitus interruptus a lot. <laughs> now my kids are all grown up. Uh, they're all, three of my daughters are turning 13 this year in AA and in various cities, and the others are an alcoholic, and they're not turning anything. Uh, only one of my children have gone bad. You hate to talk about that, because it's really kind of sad. You always hope you can talk about it nicely, but... My oldest daughter, last Tuesday, was elected a judge. <laughs> She'd been a district attorney. We always hoped for a defense attorney, but no. She was home for Christmas a few years ago. She said, remember daddy when we were little girls, she'd send us to our room? I said, sure, honey. She says, when you come to Albuquerque, I'm going to send you to a little room. <laughs> I have no need to go to Albuquerque. <laughs> it's all very nice. I live in a house by the west side. We talked talk to dinner tonight how good it was for a crazy bastard like me two or three years ago to walk in and make the last payment on a 30-year mortgage. And just, hey, baby. <laughs> But the one thing I want to talk about for three or four minutes now, all this is the introduction to something I want to talk to you girls about, anybody who might be having difficulty here. You might, everything I've said is true, but there's one thing you might think about later. Well, what did that, where did you get that? I said my name is Clancy, I said I'm an alcoholic. Well, when did that old fool become an alcoholic? He was an alcoholic when he drank, was an alcoholic when he got sober, was an alcoholic after that? How could he be an alcoholic? And I suppose, if there's a, if there was a, I never realized the time, you know, I heard a, a guy gave me a tape that I made 35 years ago, somebody taped me 35 years ago, and I heard myself talking about it on that tape, and I'd never even thought about it for years, but today it means so much to me, now that I start to remember it. When I was about three or four months sober, I guess I'd had a little job, and I'd lost it, but I had a chance for another job, and I was back temporarily sleeping in an abandoned car briefly, that's all right. And I used to like, I like to go to the club when I'm not working, at noon, to go to the noon meetings because there's such a group of philosophers there. None of them are burdened with jobs or work. They just, they just, <laughs> you get the really inside, the intel, intelligent people at those noon meetings. And I felt kind of good that day and I had a prospect for another job and they're talking about the steps or some hideous thing. And, and I was in such a good mood, I, 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 I was honest briefly, just briefly, I think, you know, I really envy you people because you're alcoholics. You can take the first step 
And as alcoholics, you'll take the other steps and you'll get better because I've watched that happen for years to all over. But I am not, my alcohol is not really my problem. So I can't take the first step. And so I don't know, maybe some of these other steps work, but I can't find the combination. I wish I were like you. I wish my life were simple like you. I'd give anything to be an alcoholic. And they all, you know, give the same reaction. They always give to everybody else. <laughs> but somebody, of course, snitched out to my sponsor 20 seconds after the meeting, you know. Here's what he said, now, Bob. <laughs> and so for the next two or couple of weeks or so, I think my Bob, my sponsor, Bob Bailey, and the club manager, John Sullivan, who was a good old guy, they gave me a seminar, which I'm going to synthesize to about three minutes now. And uh, it, it boiled down to this, putting all the verbiage and insults away. So, wow. You can't take the first step because you're not an alcoholic. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. But I've told you that. I'm not trying to fool anybody. I'm trying to be honest. He said, well, why are the first steps that say you're an alcoholic? It doesn't actually say so, Bob. <laughs> but that's what it means, and you know it, and I know it. You know, you're not talking to one of these little idiots here. You're talking to somebody who's pretty smart. He said, kid. You ever try reading the black parts on the page? Let's look at those for a while. <laughs> says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. You think you're powerless over alcohol? Not really. <laughs> he says, what do you think powerless means? Oh, Jesus, you guys, you heard in the meetings, the, the speakers, they, they get drunk and rape nuns, and they go to Hong Kong, and they rob banks, and Christ, they're all, I'm just a good-time guy, Bob, that's been hurt a lot. He said, I don't think that's what it means, kid. He said, what it means in every group, seven or eight or nine, maybe 10% of people who drink alcohol, nobody knows why, gets an unnatural reaction. And they don't know it's an unnatural reaction because they get nothing to compare it against. What do you think that unnatural reaction is? I guess they stay drunk all the time and act crazy. That's what they say. He said, nah, that's just podium talk. Nobody can stay drunk. It's something much more subliminal than that. It doesn't even want to dust you at all. It has to do something special for you. These kind of people, after two or three or four drinks, discover that reality looks different. And things change. Oh, Jesus, Bob, I, I, I know that feeling, but isn't that crazy every time I drink? It doesn't mean that. Because you may have two or three or four drinks and go home and go to bed. You may have two or three or four drinks and go to Mexico. You may have two or three or four drinks, fall in love with an 89-year-old woman on a walker. <laughs> it's just going to look different to you from then. Yeah, that's right, Bob. I understand that. He says the problem with these kind of drinkers is that when you drink, you play Russian roulette every time out. And you don't even know it. And you, but you never can tell. He says when you're young, you get away with it. You know, boy, what a time I had last night. About to three o'clock with these guys. What a cut! I was able to get home and get, get to work in the morning. But Jesus, what a night! Click. <laughs> Boy, that broad last night. She just she turned me every way but loose. I'm glad I got away from her. I'll tell you. <laughs> Click. Last night we went to this new bar. What a crazy bunch of bastards they were. I got in a fight with a guy. Got in jail overnight. Just terrible. Boom. Staying out of that place from now on. And that's all very interesting. But as you get older, some sinister force puts more and more shells in that baby. <laughs> and they wind up like you, kid. Boom. Jesus. 
Boom. Boom. There's a click in here somewhere. Boom. He says, all you got to admit that you can't predict what's going to happen every time out. Is that you? Yes. But Bob, you don't understand. That isn't, I can even accept that fact. But that isn't why my life is screwed up. That isn't why my life is painful. That isn't why my life is unmanageable. My life is unmanageable. That's why I drink. It isn't the other way around. It isn't because I drink. It's because I, I don't know what it is. I don't explain it, Bob, but that is why I drink. He said, kid, you tell me you used to be a good writer? Yes, sir. He says, why don't you, did you ever discover that a dash means end of thought, beginning of new thought? He says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, dash. Now here's a new thought. We also have to admit our life is unmanageable. You think your life's unmanageable? Not really. He says, you're living in an abandoned car, for Christ's sake. Is that a clue at all? <laughs> he said, but that isn't what it means, kid. Out in Malibu, the richest man in America is sitting in AA meetings three or four nights a week. And he can afford to buy chains of treatment centers and psychologists and counselors and doctors. Why do you think he'd be doing that? Jesus, Bob, I don't know. He says, I'll tell you why, because he falls in this category. All human beings, when they're born, grow up. You've had problems and conflicts and difficulties, you have to work your way through when you live through them, and tough. And if you're very fortunate, if you think, you're one of those people, when you have a few drinks, they go away. You can bury them, which is, I think, one of the things somebody said over the weekend. That perception that I believe would be correct. When you, if you be alcoholic, when alcohol begins working for you, your emotional growth slows down and almost stops. That's why people wind up 35 years old, 35-year-old bodies, 35-year-old brains, at the intermittent beck and call of 15-year-old emotions. But he didn't, he didn't put it quite that well. He wasn't as smart as I was. <laughs> he said, uh, the only thing you've said today that made sense, kid, that's right. He said, uh, you said your problem wasn't alcohol. And you're right. These people bury this stuff till drinking gets to be a problem. Then they stop drinking, and this crap comes back, and all the old conflicts and memories and heartaches and lack of maturity, and eventually you got to drink. Sometimes it gets so bad for these people that psychiatrists say they have to drink to preserve their sanity. But then you have to get sober again. Then you can't stay sober, so you got to drink. But you can't keep drinking, so you got to get sober. And you're right, kid, your problem isn't alcohol. I, Jesus, Bob, what is it? He says, something called alcoholism. Oh, isn't that the same thing? Alcohol, alcohol, not the same thing. Tremendously different. In alcohol problems, you get sober and you clean up your act and you're okay. In this hideous thing called alcoholism, which looks exactly the same to the naked eye, you get sober and you clean up your act, and it has no significant long-term effect on your life other than to gradually make it so painful you can't stand it. I said, Jesus, Bob, that's me. He says, they're named for people like you. I said, what is it? He said, you're an alcoholic. <laughs> and I remember saying, well, I'll be goddamn. <laughs> I had spent 10 years going down the toilet 
because I did not fit any known definition of alcoholism I had. And it turned out the simple, plain, straightforward one is the one I had. And the result of that is this. I guess that day, as they say in chapter three, without being aware of it, I conceded to my innermost self that I was truly an alcoholic, something I would never think I'd ever do. Since that day, I have never been significantly tempted to drink alcohol. I, not because things got good. I mean, there's several, two or three times in my early sobriety where I really had to fight suicide. I really was going to commit suicide. I just couldn't take it anymore. I run away a couple of times. When my family came back, and after about a few weeks, it just, it got so, I jumped in my car and just drove away. I, I can't stand it, I'm gonna get drunk. And I drove as far as India, which is some distance away, and I thought, I can't do this. And I called my sponsor and turned around and drove back and went back to do it. Yeah. But I never thought about drinking. Because for me to drink is this, I don't care about losing my house or my family. You know, I've done that, I miss somebody, or losing my, anything. But what I know is this, if I take one glass of beer, if I take one martini, if I drink one O'Doul's supposed non-alcoholic beer that has alcohol in it, if any, I do any of these things sooner or later, tomorrow, next week, next month, five years from now, I'm going to be standing on the street corner and there isn't going to be a friendly direction. And that is the feeling that I hate when you find yourself dripping out your own sleeve and there's nothing you can do and nobody cares. And that is the greatest gift I've ever received in my life, the knowledge that there is a name for my problem. I am not uniquely crazy secretly. I'm not uniquely weak. I'm not uniquely anything. I'm an alcoholic who's lost the ability to live in sobriety and I've lost the ability to drink. And that's what AA turns out to be about. It isn't to get you sober, to get sober in treatment centers and jails and hospitals. It is my opinion, I firmly believe this. The purpose of AA is to very slowly do what alcohol does fast, to little by little change my perception of reality so the same things look different, the world looks different. And I know that's true because I've done it. The only thing that I've not been able to change is that continuing tendency to have strange decisions. When I was 15 years sober, I was doing pretty well. And in a moment of strangeness, I found myself leaving a job in Beverly Hills. And for the last 28 years, I've been the managing director of the Skid Row Mission that threw me out in 1958. And people say, why would you give up your career to run that mission? And I've never had to think of a good answer. I think, well, for such a significant decrease in salary, I thought it was spiritual. <laughs> but it's a funny thing, you know, today, when I, get out of, when I go to work in the morning, I get out of my car, I step over the bodies of dying men and women to get to my office. And when I leave work, I step over the bodies of dying men, get their cardboard boxes ready to sleep for the night. And you think, well, why does, if I have come to believe in God loves me, I believe God loves them. If God loves me and God loves them and God loves everybody, which I have come to believe through my betters, how can God love people who are dying on the sidewalk? And I could go into long philosophical discussions of that, but I think it boils down to basic bottom line is this. They are unwilling to take actions they disagree with. That's all. And that's the extreme of it all. And that's it with all of us. 
And that's why we have to stay, keep doing these things little by little. You have to be a fanatic, you have to go crazy. But all the speakers this weekend have had something in common. They still go to meetings. They still listen to or simulate listening to new people. The, when, they say, when they say, how are you? <laughs> I should say this to new people. I want to say this to save you a lot of problems. When people say, how are you? They're just saying hello. <laughs> Don't tell them how you are, Jesus Christ. <laughs> but after a while, you find a sponsor, and they do care. And little by little, it works. And the greatest gift of all, you know, tonight, today, this weekend, I guess it was Ed started off, of course, our host started off a little bit. But one of the things they say, for example, in Texas, when I first came off shock treatments at the state hospital, <laughs> I think today I'd be known as a tripolar. <laughs> but I, I finally got swindled. My, I got moved to the alcoholic where I pretended I was an alcoholic because I was going to get out of there. I couldn't get out of there as a suicide. And I just thought, and I heard for the first time, I'd never heard it all over the north, wherever I'd gone to meetings. I heard it down there, what they did in Texas. Now they do it here, apparently. Guy gets up and says, you know, anywhere else in the world, they say, my name is Fred, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Fred. But down there, they said things like, my name is Fred, and I'm an alcoholic. And through the grace of God and the power of this simple program, it's not been necessary for me to drink any alcohol or take any mind sedating or drugs since my sobriety day. And for this, I'm truly grateful. And they all say, hi, oh, Fred. <laughs> you know, and I guess that's all right, but we were just coming off shock treatment. You know, <laughs> Have I slowed down? I've often thought, if I ever got to be in a position of power or prominence, I certainly wouldn't give some ridiculous recitation of crap like that. I would tell him the truth. I want to tell you two girls the truth tonight. I told you that I've come to realize I was an alcoholic. And here's what I've learned in 43 years and six months. My name is Clancy Immisler. I'm an alcoholic. And I've discovered that through the grace of God and the power of this simple program, <laughs> it's not been necessary for me to drink any alcohol or take any mind sedating or tranquilizing drugs since October the 31st, 1958. And for this, I am very, very grateful. Thank you. We'll have the drawing uh, after the Lord's Prayer. <laughs>